If you're someone who writes poetry in Australia today, chances are you've submitted one of your poems to an online journal called Cordite. Cordite's been running for 26 years. It has 40 print titles under its belt as well now. And if you haven't submitted to it yet, you're probably thinking about doing so. It is a force in Australian poetry. Its managing editor for some years now has been Kent McCarter. And as he mentions at the start of this interview, I've been working up to talking with him for quite a while now. And throughout this conversation, as I was talking with him, I was thinking about how opaque poetry publishing seemed to me when I first started out. And honestly, it still feels that way a lot of the time. So we get into questions like, are blind submissions really blind? What's the deal with having a rotating cast of editors? How do you know what they want? How come you keep seeing the same names pop up time and time again in a journal? How many people are you actually up against when you send a poem into a journal like Cordite? How do guest editors get chosen? Does the managing editor always agree with the guest editors? And then we also talk about book publishing. What is Kent looking for in terms of his stable for Cordite books? How does he make those selections? How do the books get edited and written? And also quite a bit about how do they get into the shop? How do they get into your local bookstore? I wanted to ask all these questions because, like I said, none of this was obvious to me when I started out. And because the landscape changes pretty regularly, a publishing opportunity can appear and seem like a permanent thing for a while and then it can dissolve. I think it's good to have a bit of a snapshot of what's going on. If you look at the show notes, you'll see a list of all the publishers that we mentioned. These are the publishers putting out full-length collections right now. And I'll also link to a long piece that Kent put together for Overland back in 2017, where he outlined all the publishing opportunities in terms of journals that he was aware of at that time. Some of those don't exist anymore. Like I say, this moves all the time, but hopefully that will be useful to someone. I feel lucky that now I, I have some understanding of how this world works, but I've never forgotten how confused I was when I first started, not really knowing what I was meant to be aiming for or who I was meant to be asking for direction. So I hope this conversation serves as a big dose of demystification and I hope you really enjoy it. Yeah, I honestly can't remember when I first emailed you to talk, but um, like I said, it's a pretty standard amount of time. Like three years is pretty normal. I think we're nearly (laughs) at five, Alice. (laughs) That's amazing. I think we're nearly at five. <laughs> well, I didn't notice. I didn't notice the time. And, you know, that's kind of good because now I probably have much better questions to ask you than I would have, like, five years ago. It would have been like... Okay. Well, yeah. Interviews. I probably know a bit I mean, more. I haven't done too many in the, in the past few years, but they come at all shapes and sizes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question by way of a, a thanks to okay. start with. I can remember getting my first poem published in Cordite. I think it was 2000, the year was 2011. 
And so you would have just been managing editor at that time. I would have just started, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry to say I can't remember who the guest editor was, but <laughs> I remember that feeling of getting the email, email from Cordite, and just mm. assuming it was a rejection, and then opening it and realizing that it was an acceptance and reading it again and again and again. <laughs> and then getting my partner into the room being like, can you read this? Does this say what I think it says? <laughs> Pinch, I'm awake, I'm awake, yeah. And it felt like such a green light to keep going at that mm, point, because mm. at that stage I'd been writing for maybe four years and I had some very minor acceptances under my belt, but getting into Cordite was this goal that I had and it felt like if I could do that, then maybe there was a reason to keep going. Keep going. right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so I wondered about now your 12 years into managing editor. Yep. How aware are you of Cordite's role for poets at that stage, that very beginning moment? Yeah, look, it's that's something that has um, re really always been there and, and I think has been cultivated by my predecessor, David Prater. Um, and I should say that I submitted work to Cordite maybe three or four times when I first came to Australia and was really maybe one or two years into writing. So I had a 100% rejection rate from Cordite until all of a sudden I was the managing editor. Which, That's so bizarre. Which was very strange. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's... Its model is unique in that it does blind it does blind reading ostensibly. So people submit to the journal, and um, the managing editor role myself. I, I can tell who who everybody is who is submitting work, um, but the guest editors can't. And it's not an ironclad airtight thing. So people try all sorts of tricks about putting their name in the actual file name of a document or. What really? watermarks on the paper? It's not common, but people have really? people have tried that. I mean, See, people I are thought, mischievous. If you break the rules, you're immediately out. <laughs> but I mean, I, and I, and I don't want to run it as the Gestapo either. But it's a model <laughs> that has worked well, and it ha always produces. Um, you know, I've now done seventy-three back to back to back to back to back issues Jesus now, Christ. and. Um, in every one, in every one, there is a first time, like a first time uh, person who's, who's being published for the first time, and that's that's really why I've kind of stuck with it. I have mixed feelings about the blind reading uh, model, but that's one of its really good high points: is that you can discover really terrific new things, mm. people that aren't part of any cliques or coteries, people who aren't anybody's academic special darling. Um, you know, and there's a lot of people who you know get labeled or who are those things, and I'm I'm not immune of that. But um, you know, whether it's uh, a high school student from Perth or you know from all over the country, it happens mm. all the time, mm. and it's um, it's really rewarding to see the excitement uh, from people every time, four times a year. It's a really rewarding part to see the re the replies from a, a success notice. You said there were, you had mixed feelings about the blind submission process. What are some of the downsides? Uh, some of the downsides are, is that you, there's a, a group of, a group of poets, um, you know, uh, mid-career to, to some established who submit every time, every time. 
and and that's cool. That's not against any any rules. Um, but because they're you know they're a bit more seasoned than a lot of beginners, you tend to wind up including a lot of the same names quite often, and so it can feel a little samey samey. And these are from writers that I know and respect and and like, um, and that's. That is a downside, is that you can't completely control, I guess, the diversity uh, of, mm. of the issue. Have you ever thought about just going back and going, okay, well, get these guys out. We've seen them before. Let's uh, replace you with know, the next for, After a couple of years, I, I, I instituted, you know, with the guest editors, okay, like, so we will, we're going to do a partial curation. So you, you can directly invite five domestic writers of your choice. Cool. And five international writers of your choice. So I've been doing that for probably eight years now, and that, that's worked well. So it's helped. Uh, it's helped kind of um, shake up the okay. shake up the, a little bit of the monotony. But um, but on the other side, I mean, you have really excellent poets that always submit, and the work is always good to sometimes really really good and. Um, so yeah, so so what can you do if it's taken? It's taken. I mean, it's 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 a bit of a balance. Um, there's also times where you know every now and then randomly you'll get on a poet, you know, an established name poet who will submit, uh, and it won't get accepted, which is also fine. Um, but I've noticed kind of in some of the trends that when that happens, we never really get submissions from them again, unless directly invited. Um, and that, that's cool. It's kind of where you're at in your career. Can you be bothered sending in blind submissions or are you established enough to wait for invitations? Um, I feel agnostic about, about either one of those. I, mm. I don't have an emotion about them. But um, mm. so people just work in, in, in quite different ways of how they get work out there. So um, a, a lot of poets who have appeared in Cordite, um, you know, many of them have by, been by direct invitation. Otherwise, they probably never would have. Everybody loves to be directly invited to something. I can't. Um, I mean, that must be such an ego boost. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, so, and, and almost universally, you know, if they have something, you know, everybody's always very, very keen. So yeah. it's turned into a bit, a bit of a mix of that. Uh, but still, you know, we get, <clears throat> for each issue, anywhere between 350 to nearly 700 people submitting right that was what i wanted to ask per issue i feel like um, that's important for people to know yeah if they're getting rejected you're getting rejected out, out of 700 people like it's okay yeah it doesn't mean you're a failure it doesn't mean oh, that your poem is necessarily I mean, bad our, our unthemed issues get the get the most of course yeah. so um the one last year had nearly 700 people from Around Australia and the world submit up to three poems apiece. So it's a lot of reading for the guest editors. Um, you know, when you're plowing through that much reading, it's hard to do a really critical, detailed read on everything. That's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds into the thousands of poems sometimes. And, and so that's always worth keeping in mind that we get a lot of submissions, you know, like... Um, like most journals probably do. I mean, we it's always going to be free to submit to Cordite. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we get a lot. Mm, and, okay. uh, and the acceptance rate is, by default, really low. That's what that's the budget that we, budget that we have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did want to touch on the decision to have different guest editors 
every issue because mm-hmm. I imagine that while that keeps things, um, it changes the flavor every time. Yeah. There must be some difficulty there too because aren't you constantly training editors on how to do this work? Well, to a small degree, uh, but this is where my influence really comes to the fore is that I'm, I'm very, I choose the guest editors and I sequence them in a very particular way and I'm choosing very particular people to do it. Um, you know, and we're only doing four issues a year, so there's a lot of names out there that I still would very much be keen to guest edit an issue that I just haven't gotten around to yet. Um, you know, when I when I first started, there was um, an issue. Uh, who was it guest edited by? I believe it was by Alan, Alan Wern, and um, and he would have read all the submissions blind and. Um, and I remember, I remember looking at the results, and the results were all, I think, nearly universally male and all kind of white male, just by the, and that just, without knowing who the authors were, just that kind of work appealed to the guest editor. So I was really mindful of, like, I don't really want to be doing issues where that's the outcome, you know. So I'm, I'm very particular about, about shaking up the, the guest editors and really juxtaposing one issue to the next and as a matter of course, guest editors take all sorts of work that I wouldn't and that I sometimes flat up don't like with my, my aesthetic. Okay. Uh, and the converse is true. They leave a lot of really good work, uh, you know, in the slush pile uh, that gets rejected. So, um, yeah, sometimes that can be a bit maddening. Uh, but it is what it is. It, the upsides are still, I think, worthwhile. And it's helped... It's helped our odds with getting funding um, to the degree that we have to have this model. Yeah. So it does, it does put together a fairly good and convincing story for supporting cultural identity, diversity, all of which is very, very important to us. Mm. Um, mm. So I don't think I'm going to be changing it anytime soon. Yeah. I do want to come to the question of money, even though it's not a polite thing to talk about. No, no, I'm happy to talk about money. <laughs> Great. Okay, I'm an cool. American. It's my God-given right to shoot you, <laughs> to shoot you, or sue you. <laughs> okay, so, so what has changed in the time since you came on board to now? Because I know there have been some pretty difficult moments in terms of keeping the money yeah. there. Well, I think overall there, there's a fairly strong misunderstanding that because Cordite has been around now for 26 years that it's there forever. It'll always be there. That it somehow has an endowment or that it just has money. Um, (laughs) Imagine an endowment, my God. I know, right? And, um, (laughs) you know, but it's, uh, but that's, that's not the case. I, I've, I haven't earned a single dollar um, from from being the director of the organization or managing editor or, or publisher. That's, that has been my choice. I have questioned that choice a lot, but it has been my choice. Um, and I've worked really hard to be able to pay, you know, the masthead editors at least something, stipends. I really, I have no interest in asking people to do things for free. Sometimes people donate work, that's great. I do accept, we say thank you, that's very kind. Um, but we, you know, we also are really keen 
to pay the artists. And uh, pay the artists campaigns of the past five, six years have been very successful. What hasn't been so is, you know, think of and let's try to remunerate the producers and, and the people who are holding the few places to publish together. Um, and, you know, Cordite is one of them. And so that's, that's an angle that I'm really going to kind of pursue into the future. So we're subsistence on, um, on grants funding, Australia Council, uh, Cal, Cultural Funds, Creative Victoria. We've even been successful in getting some funding from Create New South Wales, which is really rare for an out-of-state organization to get, but I've been able to demonstrate that we've published a lot of people from New South Wales. Um, you know, but all of those are annual project grants and piecing together a sustainable business model and operations when you don't know any more than 10 months into the future is incredibly hard, incredibly hard. So that cordon has kept going is, is quite miraculous, uh, I have to say. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's always, you know, it's always a bit of an, on a knife edge as, as it is now. Again, we missed out on two tentpole, major tentpole fundings. Um, if that happens one more time, then the, we'll have to suspend publication of the journal and service the books that we do have until such time as we get more funding. So it's really, it's always running very, very lean. Um, but I can, I can imagine this is one of the things that I think is different now than it would have been in 2010, 2011. Mm. If you came out and said, Cordite has to suspend for a year, but if everybody wants to contribute to this crowdfund, we can keep going. Honestly, I can't imagine not donating to that crowdfund. Like, and I, I just think that you yeah. would, just, you would crowd just get funds, that money. I, I, I'm not too keen on them. Uh, they, they, I think they work for once-off projects. So if okay. we were to do a special book or an issue, that could potentially make sense. But in keeping something going in perpetuity, it's not a very safe thing to rely on. You, you may have year one where you get a good response and you get maybe an additional 20,000. Um, great, that, that will get you three more issues and then you're back in the same place. And does that then look bad to Ozco and everybody else that you've gone out and got money from somewhere else? Like, oh, okay, no, no, well, no, you no, don't no. need us anymore. No, no, no. It doesn't, doesn't look bad to that. They're, they're quite, quite the opposite. The, the more diversity of income you can demonstrate, Oh, they like that. The, the better things look. <laughs> okay. And I'm saying that having been an assessor for Australia Council and Creative Victoria many, many, many times over. So that's, that's definitely the All case. All right. Um, that's another interview we need yeah. to do then. <laughs> um, but I just don't think crowdfunding works for something that's going in perpetuity. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not, I'm, I was more interested in getting Cordite to being a you know, uh, an ACNC listed charity, not for profit, and then to get on the registry of cultural organizations, which means we have all the right tax status. You know, I'm not a, a lawyer by any means, and I, I tried to find my way through all those hoops at the tax office for about two years. We finally, I finally did it. So we have all, all that infrastructure in place to pursue philanthropy, which I'm much more interested in doing than just crowdfunding. Um, Right. Every, every now and then when the coffers get too low. Um, on the other side of that, that takes a lot of time and effort. And since I'm everything from janitor to CEO of this organization, in a way, 
outside of the you know the, the active masthead who contribute pieces. Um, it's all about time, and Cordite is already a, a donated career. I have a full time day job as well, so it's it's um, it's hard to find the time to really kind of pursue uh, additional funding channels. Yeah. Really, um, I started the books in part to start generating some organic income, which I knew would be looked at positively from funding bodies, and it certainly has. But also it's been fun to produce the books because it's, the books is where Cordo is exclusively me. Um, you know, the people who we publish is, you know, it's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm the, um, the publisher, so we I reach out to people or I'm the one who's saying yes or no, so. Okay, okay. Uh, and it's all very dependent on, on funding, which is maddening yet again, so it's it's hard to, we've always been a bit reactionary. We don't really have the financial freedom to just receive a bunch of manuscripts uh, unsolicited and say, yes, this is great, we'll do it. Um, more often than not, it's, okay, we're interested in this, but we're going to have to attach it to a funding application, and if that's successful, then we'll do it. So. I can kind of protract into two, two and a half years sometimes, uh, which, you know, everybody's really eager to, to have a book out and, and people can get kind of deflated on that, but that's, that's the reality of it. Right, okay. I was going to come to the books as well because I also remember that moment of Cordite Books becoming a reality and thinking... Um, Kent is already doing so much work how the hell is he going to make this work as well? <laughs> like, but I, I guess my question more is not how do you find the time because that's an unanswerable question, but um, I'd like to know on behalf of the people listening what kind of work you're looking for. Mm. I read an interview with you in ABR where it said you were looking for newer people and underpublished people. But yeah. that seemed a little vague. <laughs> well, th that, is, that is my answer yet again. But uh -huh. I'm happy to un unpack that a little. I mean, I'm definitely keen on um, debut writers where the work is exciting and it's taking some risks and it, it's engaging with the fact that, yes, I'm producing poetry um, and so, you know, I'm going to consider lineation and cadence and style and constraints. I'm less keen on work that feels just more like diary entries, and there's a lot of that. Um, so if, it's, if something is, is really taking a lot of risks and it's different, unique, uh, even if it needs a lot of work, um, you know, and that's quite common. We, some of the books we've done are very gone through very heavy developmental edits more than others and, and, and that's fine I'm always very clear about what's going to happen um, so that there's there's that group and you know there's always new and exciting writers uh, so th that's not ever going to dry up I don't, mm. I don't think mm. um, and then there's another group of you know uh, authors who are this is kind of tips back to my financial accounting business days which I don't tout much but that's where my career started um, in superannuation uh, really highly undervalued stocks and a great example of that was Janine Liane who had had one or two books out a long time ago um, you know and and um, I remember we, we, we got to talking and I think she was 
interested in, in putting another book together. And um, but you know, it had been I don't know ten years since a, since a previous book, and uh, you know, she she certainly was a mature academic with her own ecosystem of interests and championships and it's like well no one I mean there's even there's very few places to publish in history but no one else is really kind of she doesn't seem to be pursuing any other publishers I'm you know like I'm, I'm definitely keen um, same could be said for um, another indigenous writer John Mucky Burke who had gone nearly 30 years between between books um, and I'm kind of in a, in a unique position with Cordite where I see a lot of work come across the desk that gets submitted or, or whatever. And so when things really stand out, I might look into research, you know, who, who, who are these, these writers? Um, what did they last do? And, you know, um, and so, yeah, th 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 that appeals to me as well. Mm. Probably the, the third group would be um, potentially even really established writers who are putting together a manuscript that is notably different from what they may more quote-unquote typically write um you know and there are there are some that fit that bill but but mostly people kind of follow find their groove and aesthetic and and they keep reproducing variations of that which almost sounds derogatory but i don't mean it at all like if you find your groove go for that and um, you don't have to change things up wildly every time just because but sometimes people do and sometimes the results are quite interesting yeah. and uh, and so that also appeals to me but that's relatively rare so the, the first two groups um, yeah appeal yeah that makes sense Thank you for that. That's much. I, I just think that'll be useful for, yeah. for people to hear. Well, for example, yeah. I mean, our most recent two books, um, one is by Alison Flett, who the, the Scottish-Australian poet in Adelaide, who has been in Australia for a long time. Uh, I, I don't know how many years, but years and years and years. Um, her last publications were all in Scotland. Some were exclusively written in Scots only. Um, but, you know, but she has been been active in, in poetry and the scenes out there. And it's really, it was really great work. So that was a, an author that I had been watching for a while. And I just straight up asked her one day, do you, do you have a, do you have a manuscript? Like I'm, I'm interested in what you're doing. Um, and she did. So we worked on that and lo and behold, now it is published. Mm -hmm. um, the other one that came out at the same time was by, you know, a really established poet, Kim Cheng Bowie who has had some books in Australia a long time ago, kind of got railroaded out of Newcastle Uni for reasons I don't fully understand, but is off in Singapore now. But you know, he's a, a terrific writer that has kind of, had kind of eschewed Australian publishers and, and, and poetry, um, but had a manuscript and uh, we got connected and it was great. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. So that's a case of someone who's a very established, seasoned, award-winning poet already, mm. um, but is not someone that you see on social media feeds, no, no social presence, someone you have to kind of go and find. Mm. And, um, and I'm, I'm interested in doing that. Yeah. Uh, and they're amazing books. So I'm, I'm proud of both of them. Mm. We so tend not to do darlings of the moment. 
Uh, and <laughs> I, I wish I would have been one of those. I never have been. I don't think I'm ever going to be. Um, it'd be a fun ride, but I, I'm, I'm not, and it doesn't terribly uh, appeal. Other people can do the darlings, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are, there are other places to publish, but, you know, really there's, there's not many, not many, and it's... Um, well, I'm going to challenge you on that because you published a piece in Overland that I recently mm -hmm. found called They Will Oxidize Before You Even Finish Reading. Yeah, yeah. And that was a catalogue of, it was written, came out in 2017. Yeah. Um, it's a very detailed catalogue of every publication avenue that there was at that time. And when you look at it, you realize there are so many places. There, there are well, the focus of that like. piece. The focus of that piece was on where, where, who's publishing work that's not a full-length collection. Okay. So, a particularly lopped off. Who's doing full-length books? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when you get to that, yeah, that there are there are a lot of places, and they bubble up, and they go for a year or two, and then they fade away. Uh, and that's just the nature of poetry. Worldwide, poetry has a really organic exchange of sharing and swapping uh, that bubbles up around the world that other you know, that novels don't have, short stories don't have. Um, you know, it's something unique to poetry, and it's really, really great. There's no broadsheets out there in newsprint that is a portion of a novel. And if there, I don't know, maybe there has been such a thing, but not not frequently. But that, that stuff frequently happens with with poetry, mm -hmm. and in Australia as well. So that's that's really great. Um, but everybody would love to get a book out there, and um, and in getting a book out there, <clears throat> it's much easier, much much easier to developmentally edit the book and make the physical product of the book like a snappy piece of artwork that interests me to do. And I believe we do do that. It is much harder to get that book out into the world really hard and I think um, a lot of people don't quite understand the intricacies of distributing a book uh, in the way that a record or a CD is distributed they work very similarly and to get that is really hard so just making a book and printing it doesn't in any way mean that you can walk into um, a Dimmix in Wollongong and it's going to be there but people assume that um, they really do. A lot of people do, and it's. Uh, do they get? Do they write to you saying why? All, all the time. All the time. How do I get? My, like, why? Why isn't this in the shops? And it's like, first, it, but even if you have national, international distribution, which I've worked very hard to get, you can't make shops stock you. We can make it as easy as possible them to stock you, and I have done that, but you can't make them. It's really up, up to them what they no. want to stock. No, so. I've, I've done that work of shop, trying to shop yeah. around a publisher's books to bookshops in malls and yeah. stuff and trying to explain, like, that you should take this book because, you know, and they yeah. just look at it like, no. I'll so, take your cookbook I mean, and your kid's book. <laughs> That's it. You can get all the infrastructure together. And then so there's a, there's a lot of work uh, on poets to kind of alley-oop that you know so if you if you're someone like like Evelyn Araloon who is an editor of Overland and has a strong social media presence and does a lot of activism and the writing is really great um, you know that's very attractive for festivals it's very attractive for bookstores like okay you know we'll, 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 we'll take a few copies of that um, you know that's that goes a long ways uh, and um, a great many of Cordite authors don't do that, and, and I've made an active choice. I'm, I'm not going to pursue only people that are willing to do that. 
uh, because that's that really narrows kind of the, the pool of books one could do. Um, but you must be working hard at it because I, I go into any bookshop that is anywhere near me and I generally see a Cordite book. Yeah, I mean, it's um, titles, say, like Tony Birch's first poetry collection, Charmaine Paper Talk Green's collection, Omar Saker's debut collection. Yeah. Um, you know, they've all had wild success since. Uh, those books are, you know, they were taught in universities. They're frequently just in shops as a matter of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the way that some other ones, you know, really amazing books of poetry aren't because they don't have a high name recognition and, you know, maybe we'll print 500 and we might sell through that print run in three or four years and that will kind of be it. That's more common than not. Um, then again, you, ha- you have something like um, Lucy Van's book, which has really taken off. It's on the long list for the Stella Prize, mm. um, you know, which I consulted with for two years to try to get them to finally consider poetry, and, so and then great. they did. I didn't realize And the long list long actually list. has a lot of poetry on it. It was really exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, so that prize, which everybody knows, is, moves the commercial dial a lot, probably second only to the Viles Franklin. And... Um, you know, so even just obtaining that Cordite title on a long list, the sales are going to increase way more than they would have naturally. And the book did really well just by itself. Um, so, yeah, getting books out there is really, really, really hard. Uh, much harder. You've got to be really perseverant than actually making them, mm. which is a little frustrating. Because you can make beautiful artworks, and then what do you do? You have the stock of... 10 boxes filled with books. How do you get them into people's hands? And you can go to readings and they will maybe say, okay, we'll take five on consignment. So you've got to remember that they have five copies. You've got to remember to follow them up in X months, ask how many they sold. They probably might have no idea. They might have lost lost them. Um, they, so then you've just hard donated. to ever get a single dollar out of out of that <laughs> method. So the sailor, the, the sailor return methods, um, consignments, a lot of indie stores do that out of earnest good faith because they want to support that. And that's great. And, you know, they have to mitigate their risk as well. Like, yes, I'll buy 30 copies of this random nobody, even though the writing may be amazing. You're probably not going to sell them, maybe one or two. So there's a lot of commercial headwinds swirling around in the in those choices so it's it's hard to get books onto shelves even if you make it as easy as possible for booksellers to do it yeah so i I did do that uh and and it was worth it in the end again i just feel like this is good for people to hear right because it's like i imagine that there are many many people out there with their manuscript they've been sitting on for three or five years and they're Mm. thinking okay, well, once, once it gets published, then my life will begin. And yeah. <laughs> I'll be able to tell. And, you know, people do ask you, like, if you say, like, oh, I've, I've, yeah, I have a book, like, oh, where can I get it? <laughs> like, um, It's hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that's, that's not uncommon. And in yeah. the case for my most recent book, um, you know, it was published by Five Islands Press, right as they announced that their distributor had gone bankrupt or stopped operating. Uh-huh. And I think they made a really unfortunate choice in saying, well, okay, 
we're just going to stop publishing right as my book was coming out. So it had a really good launch, and then it just went into the ether. Absolutely nothing. Like, it's not accessible. You can't buy it anywhere. I don't even know what happened to the stock. It's probably pulped. I've got one copy. Jesus Christ. Um, And so, so in some ways, that was a whole manuscript squandered. Um, But it wasn't particularly anybody's fault. It's just uh, that was just kind of how how things went. Um, I wish they would have kept going, but then you get back to the issue of, okay, we're, we're going to produce beautiful books. What do we tell the authors? You know, we, we don't have any distribution. So we, we can make these beautiful books, but it's kind of up to you to organize the launch, and it'll be up to you to get them into shops. That's not a hugely attractive thing. And it's still right. I'm still kind of trying to puncture the assumption that if a book is made, it is just somehow accessible on uh, bookdepository.com. Like, making that happen is incredibly hard mm. and um, yeah if a book is made you have miles and miles of steps to go before that is a reality mm-hmm. um, just things to keep in mind things yeah. things to add to your Which picture is, I guess, of what getting it's like back to, to your, your book your, your question about the peace in overland um, so thinking about the number of publishers who currently are doing full-length collections you know there's not many very few. Well, who have we got? Um, it's a University of Queensland Press. UQP, Giramondo, Giramondo. Cordite Books, uh, Recent Works Press, yeah. Upswell, Puncher and Wetman, Vagabond. And that's really about it. Now, UWAP had a long, yeah, fruitful did. run, and they're still around as a press, but I don't know if they're really going to be doing poetry in the way that they did when Terry Ann was still there. She has... She had left and she had started Upswell Publishing and was immediately at a pretty good list of poetry. So that's very exciting. But she's always been a supporter of poetry. But the number of people who are doing poetry and have um, at least domestic and New Zealand distribution is uh, Giramondo, UQP, and Cordite Books. Hmm. So I'm trying to decide whether that's too few or just enough for a country of I think, I think million. It's, it's too few, but it's, it's, it's uniquely hard to maintain the distribution relationship, um, you know, which I, I believe Puncher and Whatman had, and maybe they currently don't. I'm not quite sure. They may still be on New South distribution or, or not. I'm not. I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. once you have that commercial kinetic motion going, you kind of have to keep feeding it yeah, okay. in a way. And um, when... It's so hard to get funding, uh, you know, and if you resist putting in your own money, um, you know, it's, it's hard to keep it up. So you have a publisher like Vagabond who, you know, had, has a fantastic list of titles, really yeah, excellent. Really amazing. You know, Michael Brennan has excellent taste in writing. Getting the books out there and into shops is very challenging. Um, and um, and same with recent work press as well. I, I don't believe they have uh, national distribution yet, uh, but they're still very active in producing books. And um, you know, so getting them, short of going online and just buying it online, which I encourage everybody to do, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you, you can't just walk into a Dimmicks and see a bunch of recent work titles because the option for a shop really isn't there unless. They init- unless they specifically call you up and say, I'd like to buy these 
few titles, can you sell them to me at 40% discount? Um, you know, if, if an indie shop is willing to buy outright, as many shops were with Cordite before we had distribution, well, that's great. That makes it easy. You don't have to track the sale or return and all that stuff. But a lot of shops aren't willing to do that. Um, so it's, it's kind of like going through the, the Kuiper belt of asteroids and, and you know, making it through that. It sounds like it. Uh, it's tough, um, but I have. I have. And so the online option then circumvents all that. Yeah, and if, if people are willing to go to cordaitbooks.org.au or go to Vagabond or Puncher and Whatman, you can buy books directly from them and recent work um, straight away. And, you know, so the DTF solution, direct to fan. Um, <laughs> music's been doing that a long time. Yeah. And, you know, uh, poetry publishers should probably, you know, have that have been as well, but that's... That's a big source of the of the income for us. Mm. Um, is, is selling books online, but it kind of sorry I'm kind of rambling on a tangent here That's ab fine. about money. But it's it reminds me of a, a comment that I had with um, the great indigenous poet Peter Minter and Kate Fagan after a poetry conference in, in Berkeley. I remember we were talking, and I remember they said, you know, there's there's a part of the bargain that's not being met, and that's poets and anybody who engages in poetry professionally, whether that's the writing of or the submission of, you know, there should be some onus on those people to commercially engage in the perpetuity of the industry. What does that mean? So, I mean, like, if everybody who submitted to Cordite and was published or submitted or who is professionally engaging in poetry in any way, if everybody bought one domestic poetry book a month, just one, it would be so trans transformational. It'd be, I mean, it would change things completely mm. in terms of keeping a press going. Um, and you would see more, you would definitely see more presses publishing poetry. It sounds so menial, so a couple of coffees a month, a bottle of wine a month, one domestic poetry title. But poets and people who engage with poetry don't come anywhere close to doing that. They don't. Look, I have, to, I have to say to you that I probably do, but my problem is that I have this fucking pile <laughs> yeah. of books that I haven't read. And so that's the thing that I'm thinking when you're saying, okay, we've got, we've got Giramondo, Cordite, Vagabond, Upswell, recent yeah. work. Then as a reader, hmm. I am constantly feeling like I'm late, missing out, and can't keep up. I yeah. just can't keep up. <laughs> Look, and, and I should clarify that there are some, I'm not going to name names, but there are some note people who definitely do very actively buy a title quite frequently, which is really <laughs> great. But if everybody did that, yeah. it would be... So, I couldn't even describe how much of a game-changing uh, influx of cash to the production, the professional production of poetry print books would be. It'd be monumental. And it sounds so minuscule, but it would be huge. Absolutely huge. All right. Well, this is your, this is your call to action, listeners. Uh, but no one likes to be told how to spend their money. No. And, this, and <laughs> I imagine the that there'll be people who will flinch and, and balk at what I just said there. Uh, oh, but that, that, that's fine. I mean, it's, That's all right. Yeah. 
I want to step a little bit away from the mechanics, even though I think that's been so good to hear about, mm. because you do have a 20,000 foot view on the work that is being written in Australia right now. And yeah. I'm really interested in that. You mentioned you see a lot of diaristic poetry. Mm -hmm. Do you think, is that a, a major strain? Like what direction are we moving in? And is it a good uh, direction or are we just copying look, what the Americans are doing or? When I got to Australia and the reason I came to Australia was to do a, a degree in creative writing and English at the University of Melbourne. And I was paired up with um, Tony Birch as a research supervisor oh, and, wow. and paired nice. up with Chris Wallace Grab as a creative supervisor. So I got really lucky That's, with, with those wow. guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, but at that time, University of Melbourne, it was pretty barren. There was not a lot of poetry going on. And so things kind of go in sine curves and in waves. But that probably would have been right at the beginning where, uh, you know, things were still heavily dominated by older white men really kind of dictating what a poem is, isn't, what's getting published. A lot has changed since then, and a lot, for, a lot for the better. Um, and in that time, you know, there's been a whole generation of identity poetics, um, which is great. That's been well, well overdue. Um, How would you define that? For example, um, you know, Omar Saker's first collection was very much about self-identity, about being openly bisexual, being openly bisexual Middle Eastern man, um, really how cultural, you know, with the cultural hat on, how has it been to be in Australia and, and interact and, you know, books that really kind of focus on, on that. And there's some absolutely terrific examples, uh, writers doing really strong work there. But like any stream of poetry, there's some really great stuff, there's some mediocre stuff, and there's some stuff that just wasn't ready or wasn't very good. Um, but that's true for all styles, you know. Um, in America in the 70s, the, the confessionalist poetry was very popular. And, um, uh, you know, and, and the same thing applies. There were some really terrific examples and, you know, some mediocre ones and ones that you think, well, how did that get published? Uh, Have you ever looked at Robert Lowell's The Dolphin? No, no, I haven't. So fucked up. It's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and um, you know, there's a you know, so identity poetry is still you know, it's having a very long, protracted time in the sun, which is which is good, and that that kind of work should be here to stay, and there needs to be a safe place for indigenous works and Asian Australian works. Um, that's that's been nothing but a good thing. But it doesn't mean there has been hasn't been titles. It was like, well, that's you know that needed some work, needed a lot of work. Um, you know, that's that's also true. So what may be coming after that? I don't know. Um, I think if anybody says they did, they'd be kind of making shit up. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But you know, there's a lot of really exciting hybrid sort of writing. I'm really keen to see you know things that are kind of prose but slip into poetry, really experimental work, you know, like Unwin Crawford's book, No Document, uh, you know, which was very successful and is a, re a really terrific book. Um, you know, I'm, I'm keen on, I'm keen on things like that as well. So 
we've got a few manuscripts that we're looking at now that are that. Um, you know, and, and that's really come to the fore in the past couple of years, much more than, say, when Cordite books started, which hasn't even been that long ago, mm. where you would get more hybrid styles of, of writing. So I'm, I'm definitely interested in that. I probably would imagine we'd be seeing more, more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who the writers are, we'll see. And if you were listening to this and you were a poet who writes mostly first-person diaristic poems about their immediate life and surroundings and you didn't want to change and you thought that was good and important work to write and to continue with, mm. what would you direct those poets to do? I'd say keep, keep at it. I mean, write, don't, don't write for a publisher and don't write for public opinion. Write, you know, don't even, you don't even have to write what you know. Like uh, in poetry, you know, there's no ob- obligation to some truth. I firmly believe there's no obligation to the fucking truth. Uh, there's not some grand firmament that poetry almost reaches other forms down. But people get really caught up in that. You know, it's, it's, it's a nutso world. Like, humans have put robots on Mars. Like, I'd be keen to read a manuscript about that. Like, that's nuts when you think about that accomplishment. Go for it. Whether you, you know, whoever you are, writer of color, writer not of color, whatever identity, um, you know, go for something like, like that sometimes. But it's also true that really identity-based work, you know, again, like Charmaine Paper talked Green's collection we did a couple of years ago, which was all uh, in the shape of personal letters to her late mother. Um, you know, it was incredibly moving um, about being displaced. And, and you know, there's, there's got to be room for that too. And I'm very keen to do that. Um, but it's, you know, it took poetic risks. It, it wasn't just completely four-line left lineated stanzas that didn't appear to engage in the tools of the really large toolbox that poetry can offer. Um, a lot of work, a lot of that work gets written and most of it does wind up getting rejected at Cordite, no matter who the guest editors are. Um, so. I guess I'd say don't be afraid to don't be afraid to experiment. And don't be afraid to fail. Uh, heaven knows I have plenty, um, and everybody has. So, yeah, go for it. You, I want to unpack that word risk a bit because you mm-hmm. used it at the beginning as well. And I would hate for people to assume that, you know using some weird indentation or something constitutes risk. That's not, I imagine that's not what you mean. No, no, that, I mean, that's not what I, I mean. And it's like risk can be exposed in, in different ways to different people. So you, you know, you have minority communities are in, taking on a, a lot of risk in some ways and getting their stories out there that heretofore had not been. So that's a risky thing. You're, I mean, you're exposing your personal self and your, your community's identity to a wider reading public. That's a burdensome risk to, to have to hold, I would imagine. Like I, I'm a native English speaking straight white guy. Um, I'm, the, I'm the bullseye of what diversity is measured against. I am aware of that. I'm aware of its privileges. Um, you know, so I don't know what it feels like to be writing from a minority perspective and 
putting something out there in, in the world that you know may ruffle some feathers um, you know that takes risk on, on those writers so there's that kind of risk um, and then there's also the, the risk of constraints constraints even as like writing exercises you know writing in the form of a, a sonnet or a ghazal or, or you know those kind of things can produce sometimes total rubbish, but sometimes really amazing accidents or, you know, really refined, refined poems. So risk can be interpreted in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but some work that I read simply is simply like reading a diary entry. And that isn't inherently bad, but does it make for interesting poetry? In my view, not particularly. Um, but maybe in somebody else's view it does. Mm. So I wouldn't discourage anybody from, from writing. You don't have to pursue getting a book out there in the world. There's, you know, pe people write for all sorts of reasons. It's surprising. The diversity of people who submit work to Cordite is bananas. I mean, it's from <laughs> all over the country and, and the world. I mean, but from the country, it's from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of postcodes from inner city Melbourne and Sydney to the most remotest places you can think of. So there's a, there's a fallacy in people think that you know, people aren't interested in poetry. That's blatantly not true. Um, but people are writing it and attempting it all over the place. And, and you know, some are submitting it. Mm. Um, and that, that's a risk in and of itself. You know, you've written something submitting it for a total stranger to read and to judge you that's a risk uh and it's a necessary one if you have ambitions to to getting published mm. um you know so risk can be interpreted a number of ways um i'm not sure if that answers your question no I, that, that's that's really great um i just have a couple more questions i'm really interested in your understanding of poetry in the US now that you are 10 or longer, many more years away from it. You've, you haven't lived in the US for quite a while. What does that scene look like to you now? Uh, it's honestly, it's totally foreign. I really, I, I, I don't like the term foreign, but when I, you know, 95% of my interest time and production of poetry has been in Australia. Um, I took some writing workshops at University of Chicago and, um, you know, got, got super lucky in, in working with, um, with Mark Strand, who's now gone. I was in one of Tom Gunn's final workshops that he did at University of Chicago. So, I mean, I was really naive, naive then. Like, I would love to go back and do those kind of things again. I was, I really didn't hardly know the first thing about what I was doing then. Uh, and, you know, the States is a massive place. There's so much going on. There's hundreds of places to publish that are doing print books, uh, you know, and an infinite number of things where there might be pamphlets or broadsheets or what have you, chapbooks. So to answer the question, I don't know a lot about that. Um, most of my time has been here. And I don't know if I would have the energy to really go and explore that in detail. Like, I wouldn't be the right person for that. Somebody in the States, like, I, I sound American, but for poetry, my experience has been almost you know, exclusively from an Australian perspective. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being, being a migrant, but, you know, 
until I open my mouth, I don't look like one. And, and that's come with privileges. And um, yeah, it's been most, mostly here. So okay. I don't know, to be honest, to answer, <laughs> that, to answer totally that question. I, you know, I've submitted things overseas. It's, um, I've had some things taken in the UK, one or two in the States, but not many. It's mostly, mostly re rejections that, that I would get. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Fair enough. And that leads me to the last thing I wanted to ask you, which it feels a bit unfair for this to be the last question, but in chatting to you a little bit, it sounded like your relationship with your own work was one that was maybe when we first started talking quite on the back burner, a little bit coming out of hibernation now, you were saying. Mm -hmm. um, how on earth do you find space in your head to carve out for your own stuff when you're living and breathing other people's work all the time. Yeah, I mean, since the dawn of the books, I really haven't. And there's some yeah. other factors in there. Of you know, It's been a, a rough five or six years for me from many angles. But I haven't been doing much of my own writing at all for about six years, really. Uh, and even the work that was in the most recent book, which is now a number of years old, was written many years before that. So. Um, when I was just pursuing degrees at university and only working maybe part-time, I had a lot more time. I, I didn't have a relationship and I wasn't a parent at the time, so there was just more time then in 2004, 5 and 6, 7 and 8. And, um, and so that's what all the work that was in the first two books that, that was written. Now and then, over the past year, I have motivation has bubbled up to revisit some things that were kind of in half states of assembly or disrepair that I've I've really managed to find a week or two to focus on and to get into shape where I am keen to submit around to the few publishers who are looking at Australian poetry and to see what happens. Um, you know, so I'm. Pretty mature into that process. I certainly haven't had a contract or anything extended to me, but I've, I've had, you know, I'm at a place where I think the manuscript is relatively complete in terms of length, and I've had some readers look at it and provide feedback, and um, you know, so I'm at that point. And oh wow! What, what happens with that? I don't, I don't know. But it's very different from the poetry that I had done before. It's, uh, it's all journalism poetry, so it's all. Um, mostly prose-ish in, in a way, uh, but I'm counting it as journalism poetry for a number of reasons, um, um, which I talk about on a recent uh, recent panel that I did at, <coughs> with Jess at RMIT just a few days ago. Oh, cool. um, so yeah, so there's creative stuff in me yet, but it's uh, at, a, at a pretty low, pretty low ebb. But over time, it's, I hope that I can you know, I didn't think there would ever be a fourth poetry book. It looks like there may be. No guarantees yet. Whether there's any more after that, I don't know. Uh, I like doing, I like being a publisher, and I think I'm good at it. Um, and that will, that will probably take precedent, as long as I can keep the funding coming in. Yeah. But my own books may pop up here and there. But I, I don't feel any pressure to have 
a new book out every year the way some writers do. I just... <laughs> That's, that's never going to be me. I don't think that's necessary anyway, but some people are very prolific and okay. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I just feel like there's so much in there that people will be very interested to hear. I haven't had a chance to speak to an editor for this show yet. So, okay. yeah, or not for a long time anyway, yeah. not when I knew what questions to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes, just keeping, keeping an outlet like rabbit going um, is so much work and the feedback is generally minor and, and, and most of the feedback that I get are complaints. I was going to say, um, <laughs> you, you know, probably get just a whole bunch of hate. And yeah, it's, it's, it. it's every now and then there, there is some kind and generous feedback, but more often than not, it's people complaining about something. Um, people who feel entitled to have their work read or published or, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of self-centeredness. Uh, but <laughs> I think that's, poets? I think that's true. I don't think that's unique to poetry. No, I, I think no. that's uh, any arts yeah. <laughs> circles and coteries are going to have that. Um, and so, a grand enlightenment of just what it takes to keep the infrastructure of having places to publish to begin with, that's something that is almost completely absent. A few people know that, such as Jess at Rabbit and um, Michael Brennan at Vagabond, you know, people who have done it. Uh, and, you know, um, a really great success story is Liminal Magazine, who you know, or a number of years into it and know what it takes to just keep going. Like when you do a, the work never ends when you're doing a periodical and doing books, there's always work to do. I work on three or four issues at a time and I've been doing that for 12 years straight. Um, so some education on just what that takes and the kind of commitment is, would be good for people to understand. Mm. And mostly people are doing it for absolutely nothing. And so people complain about something being paid maybe $25, $50 too little. Well, okay, okay. But it can be challenging to absorb that <laughs> constantly. Yeah. Ouch. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, if it wasn't for that acceptance in 2011, I don't know what I would be doing. So on behalf of, you know, me, thank you. Oh, no, thank, thank you for the opportunity of um, finally, uh, finally making this happen with me. I know that I've had a lot of challenges, but you've been persistent, which is, which is great. <laughs>